Well, good morning, everybody. Congratulations on making your way in. Thanks for making your walk with God a priority and joining with us here, either in the room or joining us online. Um, as you saw right there, we are now through the book or through all the books of the Old Testament. We've been on this year-long study. We, we began in January to go from Genesis to Revelation. And today we finally turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And if you have been along for that journey and you want to celebrate that, we have some stickers out in the, in the, hob, in the, in the lobby that say, I survived the Old Testament. We have finally done it. We are turning the page and making our way into the New Testament. And then next week, as you saw in the video, we are going to celebrate all the work that God's been doing around here. We have 15 or 20 people. They're going to get baptized next week. And it's our opportunity to, to witness their testimonies and the testimony of God's goodness and his faithfulness in their lives. So you don't want to miss that. So plan on come back here next week. And as we dive into God's word, let me pray for us. God, we are so thankful. Um, Thankful for your presence in our lives. Thankful for the opportunity to gather together as your people and to hear from you as we open up our lives and our hearts and our minds to your word. So we just pray, God, that you would use this time, that you would remove the distractions of life so that we can hear from you. God, we need to hear from you and we wanna leave here changed as a result. So Spirit, do your work, meet us where we are and guide us into our next steps. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, let me set the stage for where we are in the storyline of God's redemption that we began back in January with a simple flip of the page from the last verse of the Old Testament to the, verse, to the first verse of the New Testament. We fast forward 400 years in history and a lot can happen in 400 years. I mean, just think about what has happened in the world since 1623. In 1623, the pilgrims were celebrating their second Thanksgiving uh, in their colony. And the entire history of our country can happen or did, did happen with that 400 year span. So 400 years is a big span and a lot can change. And the world of the New Testament looks quite a bit different than the world of the Old Testament. The, the previous empires that we have examined the, uh, are now in the past. There's no longer a Babylonian empire or a Persian empire or an Assyrian empire. Now there's a new world power. It's the Roman empire and it has spread throughout the known world. When we were last in the story a few weeks ago, Ezra had led a charge um, and brought some people back to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah did the same thing and he helped rebuild the, the wall and bring security back to, to the city of Jerusalem. And now the, the Jewish people, they, they've started to return back to Jerusalem. They've returned from captivity in Babylon and they're back in their city. And now under the guidance of the priests and under the guidance of the prophets, they are starting to, to retake their land and to, to reconquer their land and to defeat their enemies. And now through the priests, they are reinitiating temple worship that they haven't had in almost a hundred years at this point. And that is how the Old Testament ends. But when we get to the New Testament, uh, the, the, Jew, the Jewish people, they're now settled and they are secure and they're under the, the peace of the, the Roman Empire. Pax Romana has overtaken the known world. And now instead of worshiping only in the temple, uh, each of the towns and villages, they also have synagogues. And, and while there are still priests, when we flip the page over in the New Testament, we also find a, a number of different kinds of religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll see the interactions that Jesus has with them. But noticeably absent are the prophets. 
that the messengers of God that he has sent throughout time to remind people of his faithfulness. There had not been a prophet since Malachi, 400 years before. And while they enjoyed the relative peace of living under Roman occupation, they were still an occupied country and they longed for something more. They, they remembered the prophecies of, of old, of a Messiah, of a king, of a rescuer that God had promised since the days of Abraham. And then in this obscure little town of Bethlehem and this forgotten outpost of this huge Roman empire, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to complete his promised plan of redemption that he promised 2,000 years ago to Abraham. And this is how Matthew begins. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Amenadab and Amenadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. All right, confession time. How many of you all zoned out when I started reading yeah, that's what I, hey, how many of you, when you read through Matthew, or maybe last week when we began reading through the New Testament, when you got to this section, you skimmed over it briefly, or you just completely skipped it at hand? Be honest, you're in church, you gotta be honest. So this may be one of the least read passages of scripture. That's why I wanted to read it. So now you can check the box and say, no, I actually did read this at one time. Um, and I sensed some of you while I was reading there, going, is he really gonna read this whole thing? He, he's really going to read this whole thing, isn't he? It just, and it seems like such an odd way to begin the story of Jesus. And if you read through the other gospel accounts, they don't do that. Mark gets right after it. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And if you read Luke's account, he, he gives this, this um, word to, to his friend Theophilus. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, so that you can believe with certainty what you've been taught. And then John in his poetic way says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
And so then you read these first verses of the New Testament, like, come on, Matthew, what are you doing here? What, why begin with a list of 40 names, some of which you probably recognized, but a lot of them you don't. And it's not the most captivating way of reaching the modern reader. But what we need to understand is that Matthew's original audience were Jewish people. And if he, it was vitally important to, to the original Jewish audience and to their mindset that if they were going to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Matthew needed to explain from where this Messiah came. Because they knew full well exactly what the line would, would needed to be in order for it to be the Messiah. And this particular genealogy, it actually compresses the entire Jewish history into 17 verses. Matthew is saying to, to, this re, to the readers, the arrival of Jesus fits into the grand scheme of things. The, the arrival of Jesus, of Jesus fits neatly into what you already know about the promises of God. This birth is what Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years, that the entirety of the Old Testament actually points to Jesus, that he really is the Messiah who has come to redeem his people, to rescue his people, and to be a light to the entire world. And in these 17 verses, Matthew tells us a lot about what the Bible is really about. And he captures so much of what you need to understand, what I need to understand about Christianity. So if you're taking notes, the first point that we get out of this is that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Matthew does not start out, and I think it's important for us to understand that Matthew doesn't start out and say, once upon a time, that, that's how fictional stories, that's how fables and myths begin, but that's not how Matthew starts. He starts out with the book of genealogy of Jesus. In other words, what Matthew is saying is what I'm about to tell you actually happened. It's historical, it's objective. He anchors Jesus into space and time and says he was a real man. At the core of Christianity, it is not, it's not a set of principles. It's not a set of rules to follow, but rather at its core, Christianity is a, is a series of events that actually took place in time and in history. The Christian gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is counsel or it's a suggestion about what you need to do. News is reporting what's already been done. Advice says that if you're gonna change, it's all up to you. News says it's already been accomplished. The, the word that we have for gospel is the Greek word euangelion. And it was first a secular word before it was used in scripture. In ancient times, when a general or a king would go out and win a decisive battle, or, or they would beat back a, an invading army and, and the people are saved, that the king or the general would, would send a message into the country that says, your salvation has been secured. Peace has now returned. And that message would be called euangelion, gospel. And the messengers would be called angelos, or angels. So when Jesus was born, who showed up? The angels. And what was the message that they gave? Peace on earth. Good news to all. Salvation is available to all. They didn't say, hey, the great teacher is here. No, they, they said the Savior, 
has come. The gospel is good news. God has done something in history and it changes everything. And we will be judged by what we do with this news. Yes, when you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see a lot of the teachings of Jesus, but at the heart of the gospels is not what Jesus taught, but what he did. Christianity is not primarily self-improvement. Although you will get better at life and your life will be better if you follow the teachings of Jesus. Christianity is primarily, do do you believe the message? Do, Do you believe that God broke into history and became man? Did he really live and suffer and die and then raise triumphantly on the third day? The gospel that we read out of Matthew is good news, not good advice. The second thing that we learn is that God is faithful to his promises. Matthew starts out in verse one and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Jesus was promised for centuries. If you remember back, we we talked about the the promise that God gave to Abraham found in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, "I, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was 2,000 years before Jesus. That that is a huge promise to a single man. And even though the first part of that became true, that that the people became a nation for hundreds of years, they were still asking this question, what does that mean? How, How are we, this small people, going to be a blessing to all the nations? And then God came to David in 2 Samuel and he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God said to David that one of your descendants is going to be on the throne and he will reign forever. God had made these promises and then throughout the Old Testament, he would send his prophets to remind them of his promises. And for hundreds of years, these prophets would come to the people and they say, they would say, I I know it looks bleak right now, but the Messiah is coming. I know it looks bad out there right now, but God is sending a king. God is going to send a rescuer. And then for 400 years before Jesus, there was silence. There were no prophets. Heaven went silent. And it seemed like God had forgotten. It seemed like he wasn't going to fulfill his promises until, until Jesus came on the scene. God is faithful to his promises. And what we will see is that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the promise to David. That Jesus is the long awaited king, that he is the Messiah who conquers our biggest enemy, sin and death, and he brings peace. That we can finally have peace with our creator God and he is the eternal king who still sits on his throne. And he is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. That, that he will bless all of the nations. And how is he going to do that? Through the coming of Jesus, through the sending of the apostles at the beginning of the, of the New Testament church, and through the preaching of the gospel today. That, that because of Jesus, all nations can be blessed. In fact, Matthew begins and ends his gospel narrative with this reminder that the last words that Matthew records to, uh, that, that Jesus said to his disciples was all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the promised king. 
that all authority is under me and therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Be that promised blessing to the entire world. God is faithful to his promises. He was faithful then and he's faithful now. And part of what Matthew is teaching us is that, is that we can't judge God by our calendars, by, by our timelines. God may appear slow by our standards, but he never forgets his promises. And, and this is significant because a, a lot of us, or maybe all of us at some point in our lives will get to this place where we don't see the promises of God coming true in our lives. I think most of us know that the desperation or, or the anguish of waiting for things to get better, of that feeling of being in the waiting room, of waiting on God to do something. At some point, we all find ourselves in that waiting room between a prayer offered and a prayer answered. Maybe you find yourself waiting on a baby and you have prayed and prayed and prayed and God hasn't answered that for you yet. Or maybe you're waiting on a job, waiting on a spouse, waiting on a relationship to be healed, waiting on your financial situation to improve, waiting on a loved one to get a better diagnosis. And these times that we spend waiting on God raise all kinds of questions in our minds. And we can begin to doubt and we can begin to question, God, do you hear me? Do you see what's going on? Do you care? And these times of waiting have the potential to wreck our faith and to, to cause our hearts to grow cynical and callous and angry and cold toward God. And what Matthew tells us is that God is always at work. And while it may not look like it, even now God is working and he is in process on fulfilling his promises, every one of them. And what Matthew's account shows us is that when he does fulfill them, he often does so in unimaginable ways. Nobody saw the Messiah coming in this way, nobody. And if that was true then, is it possible that he's doing that now in your life? That it may not mean that he has forgotten. It, it may not mean that he has neglected you, but maybe that he's at work in a different way, in a way that you don't see. God is always faithful to his promises. And, and the third point kind of flows out of that is that God works even in the mess and chaos of life. Some of you may be here this morning and when you look at your past, you may think that you have done too much, that, that you don't deserve God's blessings or promises in your life, that you've made a mess of your life with just foolish decisions in your past and you think that God's done with you and that it's now up to you. You're just gonna have to reap what you've sown, that you have to just reap the consequences of your decisions, that you're somehow too far removed, that God could never use you. But what Matthew shows in this list, in this genealogy, is that God specializes in redeeming chaotic and messy and dysfunctional lives. And if you're not careful, you may miss a reference to one of the most dysfunctional stories in all of the Bible. Jerry Springer has nothing on this story. It's actually, it's referenced in Matthew, uh, in verse three, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, you can read the story for yourself in Genesis 38, um, but it is a wild story. The, the short version is that, that Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. 
and his son dies. And so then Tamar then marries a second son and that son dies. And Judah begins to think, maybe Tamar is the issue here. And so he says, I tell you what, why don't you go back to your mom and dad? And when my next son, when my youngest son gets of age, maybe I'll let you marry him. So she goes back to live with her parents as this childless widow. But one day she finds out that Judah is gonna be near her hometown. And so she dresses like a prostitute and she sleeps with her father-in-law and she gets pregnant with twins. How are you feeling about your family right now? You don't quite have that dysfunction, do you? I bet that was a weird Thanksgiving meal there. But, but yet in all of this chaos, in all of this dysfunction, in all of this sin, God works to bring about his perfect plan. Perez, one of the twins, is part of the line of Jesus. The family line of Jesus is not neat and tidy and clean, which is a, a comfort uh, to me and an encouragement to me because when I look back over my life, when I survey my past, my life is not clean and neat and tidy and perfect either. I've had hiccups, I've had failures, I've had mistakes, I've stubbed my toe more times than I need to. I, I've had heartache and hurt and disappointment and I've made stupid decisions. And what Matthew is teaching is that, that God is far bigger than all of those in our lives and that he uses the messes and the mistakes and the failures and the chaos to bring about his perfect plan. And Paul tells us what God's plan is for our lives. In Romans 8, 28, a lot of you will know this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That, that means that, that God is at work and that there is, there's a bigger picture, that there is a bigger story and that he doesn't waste anything, that, that he is the master weaver who's able to take the good and the bad, that the bright spots and the dark spots of life, the, the joys and the pains of life and weave them into something beautiful. And what looks chaotic and painful and disjointed from our human perspective, God is able to use in some way to point our lives to Jesus and then to transform us to look more like him. And there will come a time, whether it's in this earthly life or, or in the life to come, where we will be able to look back and say, now I see, now I see what he was doing. And it, it may not have been quick and it may not have been easy, but I can see the hand of God and how he bent all things for good to point me or others to Jesus. The fourth thing that we see out of this list is that the gospel is for everyone. Yeah, for me, one of the encouragements about reading this list, this genealogy, is who God decides to leave in the lineage, who he decides to leave in the family line. Genealogies back then were, were a lot like resumes today, that the Jewish people would all know what their genealogy was. And like most people do on their resumes today, we may fudge it a little bit and make ourselves look better than we actually are. And they would do the same thing. A lot of times they would include the best ancestors and then they would kind of forget some of the black sheep. But God doesn't do that. 
I mean, we've already seen the story of Tamar and Judah, but they're not the only ones. Jesus's family tree is full of outsiders. It's full of people that you would never expect to see in there. First, there were five women that were listed in the genealogy. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. That was unheard of back then. Genealogies were were completely male-dominated. So it's significant that Matthew is saying that the gospel goes to everyone, that I'm tearing down some of the the social barriers that exist. Second, there, there are some Gentiles listed in there. And during this time, there was a fierce hatred between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. In fact, the Jewish people would, would uh, have special routes so that they could go around some of the Gentile cities, that they would refer to Gentiles as Gentile dogs. And yet here in Jesus' genealogy, we have Rahab, who's a Canaanite, and we have Ruth, who is a Moabite. Both are Gentiles. And so from the very beginning of the gospel accounts, God is saying through Matthew that the salvation that Jesus brings goes to everyone. It's also going to go out to the Gentiles. And then third, there are sinners in this lineage and a lot of them. It's interesting when you read it, it says that Matthew lists David and the wife of Uriah. It's odd that he doesn't even mention Bathsheba by name. He refers to her as the wife of Uriah. And I think what Matthew is trying to do is to underscore just how heinous David's sin was. If you don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, um, David slept with his best friend's wife. Uriah was one of his best friends. And while Uriah is out to battle, David sleeps with his wife, she gets pregnant, and then he murders his best friend. Rahab is is, is in the list and she's a prostitute. Jacob was a liar. As you read through the the list of Jesus's um, lineage, you see conniving and stealing and adultery and murder and prostitution. It's all in there. What a messed up family tree, but what a triumph of grace. Matthew includes these names in the line that leads to Jesus so that you and I can know that our names can be included and the line that leads from Jesus. The gospel of God's grace extends to everyone. This list is a list of outsiders, moral outsiders and social outsiders and ethnic outsiders. And what that means is that no matter who you are or what you've done, God's grace is greater. Your past does not disqualify you from being a part of God's story, that that the genealogy of Jesus is filled with these stories of brokenness and broken people and God redeeming what was broken to accomplish his purposes. So no matter your past failures, no, no matter your past mistakes, God's grace is greater. Everyone needs it. And his grace is available to all. I, I love this list because what you see is that the king and the prostitute are equals at God's table. Salvation is a gift to receive. You can't earn it. It is just something that you receive. The good news that we saw is that in history, Jesus did something. Jesus has done it all to accomplish a way for you to experience peace with God, salvation from the, the penalty of your sin. 
So have you ever asked Jesus to be your savior, to be your friend, to be your king, to be your leader, to be your redeemer? That's what this list is all about. That's why Matthew includes it at the very beginning. He's saying God has a seat at his table for you. And if you've never prayed to receive that, I wanna offer just a simple prayer that you can pray on your own so that you can be right with God and know for certainty and apply the good news to your life. Let's pray. You can simply pray, uh, Jesus, I, I believe you are who you say you are, that you are the son of God who came on this earth to live the life that I could not live and to die my death in my place. And Jesus, I believe that your death paid my sin debt in full. And so I place my faith in what you did for me. Thank you for your forgiveness. I invite you to be the leader and the king of my life. Lead me and I will follow as best as I can. And God, for all of us, thank you for the reminder that your gospel is good news, that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for the reminder that you are faithful, that even in the midst of our waiting, and it's hard for us to see, we know that while we wait, you are at work. And God, thank you for the fact that grace triumphs over all and that our messes don't disqualify us, that you meet us where we are and that you can use our brokenness and our dysfunction to accomplish your purposes. So God, we turn over our lives, lead us, and we will follow you. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming out, everybody. Hope you guys have a great week and we will see you back here next week.